Good morning, everybody. It's, it's always um, a pleasure to be with you guys and to, to get up here and have the opportunity to share with you guys. But I especially love doing that at Advent. I, I've said it in years past, I'm gonna say it again now. Advent is my favorite time of year. The sense of, of expectancy and, and of everything building during this time of year, I love it. I absolutely love it. My daughter Kate is eight years old and um, Life is so much fun when you have a child and you get to see how things come online in their eyes and things like that. If you have nieces and nephews, sons, daughters, if you, if you have the opportunity to view life through the eyes of a child, it changes things. See, in the last couple of months, my, my daughter Kate, she's gotten really into Pokemon, which is awesome. Pokemon is, is great. It's also something I know nothing about, and, and so it's been a learning process for me. I have learned more about Pokemon uh, in the last couple of months than I ever could have imagined there was to know, and I know that we have just barely scratched the surface. And the way I know this is because she has an encyclopedia of Pokemon that she has checked out from the library that is nearly this thick, and, and so on our ride to school in the morning, she'll be like, Dad, Dad, Tell me a Pokemon you want to know more about. And I'm like, I, I know there's a Pokemon called Pikachu. And, uh, and she'll be like, well, yeah, but tell me another one. And I'm like, I, I don't know. You pick one and tell me about it. And she will. That's, that's our new ride to school routine as she tells me uh, about, about Pokemon. And so in the midst of her uh, excitement over Pokemon, there is this new um, Pokemon like prize box kind of thing that's come out. It's a Pokemon Gengar EX box. And she wants this thing so badly, so badly. And, and, and they have it at Target and, and, and it is like top of her list of things that she wants for Christmas. And so the day before Thanksgiving, she and I, she's off school, I'm off work, we're hanging out and we have one task to accomplish. Every year we give my mother-in-law this Spode annual plate. It's this cool looking little plate, it's about this big, it has the date and it has some, some fancy decoration on it. And these have been a huge deal for a long time. My mother-in-law has probably three decades worth of them all arranged in her house around this time of year. It's part of the festive holiday season uh, uh, for, for her. And so since my wife and I got married, what we do every year is we go out and we buy this plate and we give it to her as her early Christmas gift on Thanksgiving so she can display it with the rest of them so that the holiday can be complete. And so this year, Kate and I were tasked with going out and, and buying this plate. No problem. They sell them at Macy's. They sell them at Dillard's. It's, it's going to be in and out. No problem. Except this year, they are not in stock anywhere. And so that's a little challenging. Uh, adding to the challenge of that was the fact that at every stop, my, my daughter, Kate, who you know is in the midst of her Christmas revel, revelry, she's like, Dad, Dad, can we, can we go to Target? Maybe they'll have it there. Maybe, maybe we can go to Target and I can get a Pokemon Gengar EX box. And, and, and I'd say, but, but honey, Christmas is coming. Well, I know, but we're getting something for Nana and we're gonna give it to her ahead of time. Can't I get something that I get ahead of time? No, sweetie, Christmas is coming. And we repeated this process five or six times. And in the midst of that, I realize exactly how much I have become like my parents as I repeat the words over and over and over again, honey, Christmas is coming. Right? Like, I, 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 knew, I knew in that moment that I was fully transformed into my parents. I, I can remember being her age. I can remember being a kid. And when you walk into a store, even Target, like, we go to Target a couple of times a week. You walk into Target now, and if you're an eight-year-old kid, you look around, and it's like an explosion of Christmas in there, and everything is designed to make you want stuff, to make you want something. Whatever it is that you're into, they've got it, and you need it. And, and so in the midst of all of that... 
she is like, she is full on into this thing of like, gotta have the Pokemon Gengar EX box. I've gotta have it. She wants it so much and she can't wait. She wants to know. She wants to know that it's there. She wants to know that it's hers. And, and I get it. I get it. I remember that feeling. And I remember how hard it was to hear my parents say to me, Christmas is coming. Maybe you'll get it for Christmas. That was hard. Waiting is hard. Like even as an adult, waiting is hard because the only person who hates waiting more than my eight-year-old daughter is me. Except the world is designed to cater to the things that I don't want to wait for. And you know how this goes. Amazon Prime is a thing, right? We couldn't find that plate anywhere. They had it on Amazon. It was at our house by, by, by Monday morning, right? Like once we knew where it was, they had it to us like that. Netflix, well, let's be honest, at this point, it's Disney+. Plus. Disney+, Plus has everything that you want to see. All the memories from your childhood are right there at your disposal anytime you want. Target has drive-up. You don't even have to get out of the car anymore to get the stuff that you want so badly, right? You click the little buttons on your phone or on the computer. You tell them when you're going to be there, and, and they bring it right out and put it in your car. Chick-fil-A Mobile. You can pick it up in the drive-thru. Don't mind if I do. Just, just cruise right on through. Don't have to do anything. They bring the food to you. We don't have to wait anymore. And, and here's the thing. Before we really just blame the modern world for making us all this way, think about this. How many of the people in the Bible were good at waiting? Think about Moses, right? Like Moses, at a certain point in his life, had a problem with waiting. Abraham had a pretty spectacular problem with waiting at one point in his life. Peter had trouble waiting. And these heroes of the faith, people that we look at as heroes of the faith, they all at one point or another had problems waiting for God to bring things about his way. And so, and so it's not Amazon's fault that we can't wait. It's, it's just something that they capitalize on. So um, waiting. When I opened up my Advent devotional this year, one of the first readings that we had for this year, it was, it was waiting on God. It was a new devotional. I hadn't used it before, and, and it was written by one of my favorite writers of all time, Henry Nouwen, and so I'm excited. I love Nouwen, and, and it's on this thing about waiting, which has been going on, you know, and, and it was really in my mind. And so early on in, in this devotional, he writes, for most people, waiting has become a waste of time. And I'm like, yep, that is 100% that is true. But you know early on when they say something like that, it's a setup. And that what's going to come later is how important it is to wait. And of course it did, right? Of course it did. His central claim is, is this. The song that reverberates throughout the Hebrew scriptures is my soul is waiting on the Lord. As Christ followers, he's saying that our default position, the thing that should characterize our life, is waiting on the Lord. And I get it. We wait. We're all waiting for something. We've all waited for something at some point in our lives. And, 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 and the problem is we are so bad at waiting. Why? Why is it so hard to wait? Because in the midst of our waiting, we start to lose sight of the hope that makes waiting bearable. See, hope is based on a promise. Hope is trusting that something will happen to fulfill that promise that's been made and that the person that made the promise can be trusted to bring that about. Why does that make waiting more bearable? Because that promise, as we wait, it nurtures and sustains us. It enables us to stay there until what we're waiting for comes to pass. When you've got hope, waiting isn't about going from nothing to something. It's about going from something to something else. 
the secret to waiting is the faith that the seed has already been planted, that something has already begun, and that what we're waiting for is the blossoming of that thing into life. It's the way hope works. It brings expectancy to our waiting, and the strength of our hope is directly related to the trustworthiness of the one making the promise. Uh, have you guys ever been approached by, by those guys that are uh, trying to sell speakers out of the back of their truck or the back of their van? Like, like maybe, for instance, you're at the mall and you're walking out to your car and you've got your bags and, and you get this slow roll up next to you and somebody says, hey man, you, you need some speakers? They're, they're really great. Like they're not name brand, but they're made in the same factory that the good stuff is made in there. These are for sure just as good as Sony's and I can give you a great deal. I've got too many of them. I got to get rid of them. This is your lucky day. The promise is these are going to be the best speakers you can buy, and you're going to get them for the cost, uh, for a cost that you can't believe. You're never going to see a deal this good. Now, you can hope all you want. Those speakers are never going to sound as good as advertised. Because the promise is no good when the person making the promise isn't trustworthy. As Christians, the promise that we base our lives on, the promise that we form our trust on, is a promise from the Lord Almighty. We put our trust in God. He is the bedrock. He is the thing that undergirds his promise, and we are the ones that trust him to bring it to fruition. So from the verses that we looked at a couple of weeks ago when we first looked at Zechariah's story, we know that John's birth, it came at the end of a lifetime of waiting for Zechariah and Elizabeth. And, and when John is born, we're told that they experienced great joy. We also know that their waiting couldn't have been easy. How easy could it have been to wait when all of your contemporaries assume that the reason that you don't have kids is because you have done something wrong and God is punishing you? That had to be a hard, hard path of waiting. We're told that John's birth it undoes Elizabeth's disgrace and that, that their neighbors, they join in the, with them in this rejoicing because they've had a son. This, this, this sense of punishment is, is, is gone. And in that moment when they have the son and, and, and they're all celebrating together, they wait the eight days and now it's time for John to be circumcised. And so they, they go about that process and uh, what we see today, what we're going to focus in on in Luke is, is chapter 1 verses 68 through 79. And it's often referred to as Zechariah's song. Throughout Elizabeth's pregnancy, um, Zechariah had been, had been rendered uh, mute and deaf because he had questioned whether or not it would be possible that, that Elizabeth could have a baby at her age. When his ability uh, to speak is restored, he bursts into the song of spontaneous praise, and it starts in Luke 1, 68. And so you can open there with me in your Bibles, or you can follow along in your bulletins as we read the praises that, that Zechariah offered to God. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Zechariah sings a song of hope to the faithful remnant of exiled Israel who long for the day of their Messiah to come. 
He knew that God was fulfilling that promise. He knew that the promise that had been made to Abraham was coming to pass right before his eyes. And as soon as he can speak, he praised God because he knew that hope was breaking into the world. He praised God for what he had done throughout Israel's history because he knew that the God who had established the promise that salvation would come was bringing that to pass. Then in verse 76, he turns his attention to his son, John. He says, and you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the path of peace. See, part of the promise that that Gabriel had spoken to him had been fulfilled through the birth of his son, John. And so Zechariah now knew that since that had come to pass, the rest of what the angel had said must be true as well. Zechariah was a witness at the crack of daybreak when the clouds and the shadows of death and darkness started to disperse. So he sang Israel's song, and he also made it clear that, that his son, that John, was inextricably linked to the fulfillment of the things that God had promised in the past. John would be the one who would prepare the way for the Lord to come. And so what he's saying here is that the same God who has been at work throughout the history of Israel up to this point is the God that is at work right here and now. And he's the same God that will bring to pass what he wants to happen in the future. His experience, it built his hope and he praises the source of his hope. And it's no surprise that Luke would take care to include Zechariah's song in this gospel because it fits in with exactly what Luke is trying to accomplish through this gospel. Every one of the gospels, it starts somewhere different because each gospel writer had a different vision of what they were trying to do. Matthew begins famously with those genealogies that we all just kind of look over. But those genealogies are so important because what they do is that they establish, they establish that Jesus born of Mary and born of Joseph, he's connected to the lineage of King David and Abraham. This is the Messiah because he is so. Uh, he comes from this line. Mark, he, he, he starts with Jesus' baptism by John because his purpose is to present the person and the work and the teachings of Jesus to the Christians in Rome where he was writing. And John, as we saw last year in Advent, he goes way back. He goes back to the beginning of everything to show that Jesus was the Son of God, unequivocally, because he's connected to the very creation of all things. The reason that Luke, he chooses to start with the birth narratives of John the Baptist and Jesus is because it is crucial to him to build a bridge between the scriptures and history of Israel and the new thing that God was doing in the world at that moment. See, in Luke, Zechariah, and Elizabeth, they're Abraham and Sarah, and their promised child, John, is, is um, directly connected to the promise that came through Abraham and Sarah's promised child, Isaac. And I just said promise a whole bunch there, and so I want to clarify for a second what promise we're talking about here. So somewhere between 2100 and 1800 BC, God made a covenant with Abraham, childless, super old Abraham, promising to make him into a great nation and that all nations on earth will be blessed through him. In other words, God tells Abraham, I will bring salvation to all the nations through you. As Christians, we believe that Jesus is the one who fulfilled that covenant by living a sinless life and dying the death demanded of a sinner on the cross. He took our place there. And so when we put our faith in him, our sins are covered by his sacrifice. We're made righteous before God. 
Luke's point ultimately is that the history of Israel is the history of Zechariah and Elizabeth, of Mary and Joseph, of John the Baptist and Jesus and through Jesus to every one of us who trusts in him for our salvation. The God who is faithful to orchestrate all of that, that's the one in whom we have our hope. That's the one making, making the promise to us. Now, they say all good writers borrow from other writers, and at some point you have actually been a participant in this when it comes to Zechariah's song, and, and probably this time of year, or if you're like me, maybe during May or June or, or July, if you are the type that sings Christmas carols uh, that time of year. But, but here's the thing. There are words that Zechariah writes in verses 78 and 79 that inspired the third verse of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, where the, 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 the lyrics are this. It says, O come, O come, O come thou day spring, come and cheer. Our spirit by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Came close, but I spared you the singing there, and that is my early Christmas gift to you. It is hard, it's hard to do that and not sing those words, but... My gift to you, I didn't sing them. And, and so dayspring in there, dayspring is just King James speak for uh, rising, rising sun. He's quoting verses 78 and 79. He's, he's referring to those verses as the inspiration there. And, and that is my favorite Advent hymn, is my favorite Christmas song of all. I love the imagery of every single verse. It's just so beautiful. And in the season as we wait with, with Israel, as she longs for her Messiah to come and rescue her, the words of this hymn, they, they draw you in to the pain and the longing that Israel was experiencing, and they make it all the more real. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. But here's the thing, if you believe in, in, in Jesus, that song isn't just about the historical people of Israel and, and commemorating what they went through. As we look back, we also look, look forward. We look forward in hope because we are also those who wait. And we too wait for a Messiah to come and set things right. Their story is our story. Their hope is our hope. And, and we live in this reality between already and not yet. And as we do, we wait for Jesus to come like the rising sun once again and shine into this darkness and make it all right for a final, for a final setting of everything to right. We're those who wait. But waiting is hard. What are you waiting for? What's the thing that you're waiting for? Waiting and, and hoping and remembering, they all go hand in hand. And as I prepared for, for, for this morning and for the discussion of Advent that we had with our students last Sunday, this idea just kept coming up over and over and over again in different places that, that Advent isn't about finding some new angle on something, some, some new insight into the story. It's about remembering eternal truth. The 18th century Anglican writer, Dr. Samuel Johnson, he said it this way. He said, people need to be reminded more than instructed. That's what Advent's all about. That's, that's part of what the church calendar draws us into. We have seasons set apart for being reminded. And he's not saying that we should stop learning new things. Instead, what he's acknowledging is that we are limited human beings. We're finite. We're prone to distraction. We're quick to lose sight of what we already know. And in Advent, if we lose sight of that, we, we, we do so at great peril because we can never fully appreciate Christmas without the experience of Advent that comes before it. 
And left to its own devices, Christmas, it pushes us to be fake, to pretend that things are all right, to hide our own hurt behind big smiles and, and, and some cheap imitation of joy. Advent makes room for the hard things so that, when we, so that we get the whole story, including the parts we'd rather not deal with. When we remember the waiting and longing of Israel, when we explore the broken places, places within our own hearts, we, we make it possible to fully grasp the depth of joy and hope that break into our world on Christmas morning. And if that sounds an awful lot like what I said about Advent a few weeks ago, or sorry, about Lament a few weeks ago, it's because it is. In many ways, Advent and, and Lament, they walk hand in hand. Three weeks ago, I, I invited you all into what our students had been doing throughout the fall in our Through Lament project. They had spent this time, we had created this space for them to explore the broken and, and hurting places in their life by being honest about what was going on, by trusting in each other and by trusting uh, uh, in, in, in you all eventually that, that there could be hope found in, in the midst of that. And it's not lost on me that immediately after the sermon three weeks ago where I invited you guys into Through Lament, I, and I must have said at least a half a dozen times that Lament is the seedbed of hope. We began a series called Long Expected Hope, um, and, and, and it's just so serendipitous, and I love that. They tie together so well because, because like Lament, the soil of Advent is fertile for hope. You know, in both Lament and Advent, we open ourselves up to the honest reality of the darkness in which we live, and we begin this journey towards hope that lies in the future. And in both of these processes, we wait for that final completion. In the midst of that waiting, there's this other really important thing that stands out in all of this. As, as, as I look at, at what goes on in, in the Advent story, Zechariah, Elizabeth, Mary, they didn't wait alone. It's not easy to find hope, and we all need help sometimes. And, and this comes into focus in the Advent story. It also comes into focus in Luke chapter 7. See, John the Baptist, he sends his disciples to ask Jesus this question. Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? Now, John's entire life had been dedicated to proclaiming the message that, 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 that the Messiah had arrived and preparing people for him, uh, for him to come. And, and he had baptized Jesus. He'd been a part of this. He knew the deal. In repayment for his devotion, John has been imprisoned and things are likely not going as he had wished. And, and, and as he waits in jail, he now needs to know. He needs to be sure. He needs the hope to be renewed. So he asked the question, are you the one? So his disciples, they come to Jesus, who's in the middle of, hearing, uh, of curing people with diseases and sicknesses and evil spirits and giving sight to the blind. And Jesus tells them, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Then he adds this on to the end. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. He's encouraging John. John knows the deal and he's struggling in his waiting and it will happen to you and it's happened to me. It is a part of life. And so what you've got to do, you've got to find some people that will surround you and remind you of the hope when you need to be reminded. 
you know, I'm, I'm 36, I'll be 37 in a couple of months, and uh, what that will mean is that I am, uh, I will be 18 years past when I graduated from high school, which is weird to think. Um, it doesn't seem like that long ago, and, and one of the things that I, that I actually miss most about high school is, is being on a team. I, I wrestled for four years at Lemon Bay High School in Englewood, Florida, go Mantas, which is a really weird mascot. It's not intimidating. They are the docile, you know, slowly floating version of the Ray family. No stinger, filter feeders. There's no danger there. How is that intimidating? <laughs> but here's the thing. When you've got 20 or 30 other people pulling with you in the same direction, that want the best for you, that want to see you succeed, that'll push you when you need to be pushed, encourage you when you need to be encouraged and, 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 and help you be better. It makes a difference. How many days when we go into a three-hour-long practice did one of us want to quit, but we kept going because the person next to us was willing to keep pushing us? How many times did we not want to keep going, but somebody else helped us get there? You know, I think about this when it comes to running, too. As an adult, I thought, you know what I'll do? I'll, I'll become a runner. That'll be great. Running alone is the worst. Because when you run alone, all you can think about is, are we there yet? Or actually, you're alone, so am I there yet? And, 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 and the heat or the cramp in your stomach or how badly you want to stop because your shins hurt. It is hard to run on your own. I've done a couple of 5Ks, and like I make it to the finish line, and I'm like, this is the worst experience ever. <laughs> the farthest I have ever run, I ran with a friend. We went way beyond a 5K. We made it five miles running together. And that five miles was easier than any three, uh, any three miles that I ever ran in a 5K on my own. We just kept going. We were there to encourage each other. We were there to keep pushing it. When you run with someone else, it's so much easier because we are better together. As Christians, in Christian community, we're better together. We wait together, nurturing what has already begun in the expectation of the day that it will be fulfilled. As we wait, we keep alive the flame of hope by reminding each other of the things that are so hard to forget when we're, or so easy to forget when we're on our own. You know, that God is good when things seem bad. That God is merciful when the world seems devoid of it. That God can use ordinary faithful people to do extraordinary things. That you can find peace in the midst of uncertainty. And most importantly, that you are not alone. So if in the midst of this Advent season or if in the midst of the, the rest of your life at any point, you need hope, run toward community, not away from it. And if you have hope, Run toward community because your story is the story of God's faithfulness. So share it and share your hope with others. And it doesn't have to be poetic or this, this, this great rising oration like what Zechariah offered. It just needs to be honest and it needs to be shared. And here's the thing. You guys are already good at this. Community was one of the things that made Through the Ment so successful, what made it so powerful for our students. And we knew, we knew going in that we wanted to invite people in from the outside because we believed that there was going to be something, something there. But, but, but there were questions like, who do we invite in? Who are we going to trust to bring into this? We thought about just inviting in a couple specific connect groups at each campus, kind of cherry-picking the right people. And, and there was this risky approach over here of like, well, let's invite the whole congregation in. 
and as, as, as the Lord moved us and as we thought about it and prayed through it, like that was the direction we started to go. We bet on you guys. There's also this question, how do we move our students towards hope at the end of all this? We walk with them through lament and, and we'll be right there with them. How do we move them towards hope? And, and the thought that kept coming up, the thing that we kept coming back to is, is that if you all would get in there, if you all would support them, if you all would show the solidarity with them, that that would be the catalyst that would help them move towards hope. And so we bet on you guys again, and we won huge. You know, we asked you to let, you, to let our students borrow your hope, and, and you did. I watched them across the lobby after both services three weeks ago. As you guys waited in line to read the laments that our students had written, and then with courage and vulnerability, you marked the laments that you could relate to. And some of those laments were hard things, hard things to, to let someone else see that, that you understood, that you had experienced, that you had gone through. Your support, it blew, it blew our students away. It blew me away. You guys are amazing people. I'm grateful for the way that you came alongside our students. The impact that you had was huge. Some of the feedback that our students had on this experience was, was that they were blown away uh, that adults would be willing to do this for them. Uh, that they felt more connected to the church and that they're grateful for that connection. They said that they saw the importance of being vulnerable in their community and that they didn't have to feel ashamed. They said that just knowing that they weren't alone gave them hope. And that they want to continue pursuing honesty and vulnerability in their community. You guys proved three weeks ago that you know how to bring hope, how to create community. So don't, don't stop now. Your story, it makes it possible for others to continue. Your, your, your lives, they inspire people. And we need you out there giving hope. You know, we set this, this, this Advent season aside for, for, for waiting and for remembering the, 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 the difficulties and the hard part of Israel's story and for examining the hard parts of our own. But it doesn't mean that it's wrong to feel joy. It doesn't mean that it's wrong to express joy. I think what it means is that we need this, this ethic of, of empathetic exaltation. Now, if you have joy, bring it. Bring your merriment, bring your excitement, but also bring your most caring and encouraging self. Bring your empathy. Be willing to listen, be willing to support, be willing to share everything that you've got from your story, including your joyfulness with those who need that. Because in our lives, there are moments when we need to find hope. In our lives, there are moments when we need to give hope because hope makes waiting more bearable. And we find our hope in the story of God's work in the lives of his people throughout history. It's spread in the Bible. It's also spread in the telling of our own stories. We gather together. We read the Bible. We gather together. We share our story because our future hope depends on it. Ultimately, the history of God's work in the lives of his people, it reminds us that no matter how dark it is, darkness always gives way to something stronger gives way to the rising sun that came from heaven, and it will give way when it comes again to shine on those of us that are living in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for today. I thank you that you are a God who has orchestrated everything that's going to come to pass, that you have provided hope for us, that you have made it possible for us to know that no matter what we're walking through, it can and will be set right one day. 
God, though we don't know when that day might be for, for some things, we, we put our hope and our trust in you. We believe that you are faithful, that you love us. God, thanks for doing that for Israel through, through the birth of your son who came and, 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 and then who went to the cross and died to make it possible for us to be righteous. God, I thank you that even now as we live in, in between the time of him coming and him coming again, that God, we, we can have hope because we know that things are going to be set right. God, I pray that you would lead us to the community where we can find hope if we need it and that you would lead us to the community where we can give hope when we have it to give. Let that be the thing that defines us, that we love you, that we know you, and that we share the hope that we have with one another. God, as we have these final few days before Christmas, I pray that you would give us those moments where we can where we can stop and we can breathe in the life-giving breath of your presence. Let this be a time of year when we come to know you deeper. May the birth of your son be something that we can greet with true joy and more hope than we have experienced before. We ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, in whom we have our hope. Amen.